Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price, and I want to welcome you all to my podcast this week, or welcome back if you are an existing listener. We like to call them subscribers around here. But if you're a new listener, thank you for showing up. Today's episode is titled The Children of America. I'm going to tell you why that is here in one second. But before we get into the episode, I want to first ask everyone who is not already to please subscribe to the podcast, either through here or through YouTube or both. We got some good stuff over on the YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. Give us a subscribe over on YouTube where videos are popping up all the time. So diving right into this episode, I have a bunch of sources for this episode, which I will be referring to as we go along, but there are also some sources in the episode description. So go ahead and click into the description now and you will see the links to some of the things I'm referencing here in this episode. First and foremost, we are talking today about the reconciliation bill, build back better bill, Biden's agenda, whatever you want to call it. That's that that is mostly what we're talking about here today. And we're talking about the provisions in the policy which impact children. And so with that being said, we're talking about universal pre-K, affordable child care, and an extension of the child tax credit. These are three of the things that are in this reconciliation bill. Now, there are a lot more things in the reconciliation bill, and I promise that we're going to get to more of these provisions in a future episode. But for today, we're just going to focus on these three. And so first and foremost, I want to talk about universal pre-K. Firstly, I want to say that I'm a big fan of universal pre-K, this idea. I'm also a big fan just in general of kids going into pre-K. I went to preschool when I was four years old. It was a great thing for me personally, like shout out to the Magic College or Magic Cottage, Magic Cottage, I think is what it was called. Anyway, went there four years old, you know, was really able to learn how to read and to, you know, I think do some really basic math skills when I was really young. I have fond memories of reading Green Eggs and Ham in that place. So I, I think this is an overall very positive thing for the country if this would be able to be enacted currently. Currently, only 34% of four-year-olds in America attend preschool and 6% of three-year-olds attend preschool. Now, the initiative in this reconciliation bill that is being put forth by the Biden administration would make sure that preschool would now be a universal thing for all three and four-year-olds in America. So essentially, let's talk about what that really is saying. We're saying we're expanding public schooling for two years, you know, in early childhood. That, that is a massive expansion of our education system, and I am completely on board for it. You know, this is something that would be monumental for kids across the country. I mean, and on top of that fact, it has great education outcomes because, you know, as we know, 
there is so much going on during early childhood development as far as your brain is concerned. In fact, according to the Learning Policy Institute, students who attend preschool programs are more prepared for school and are less likely to be identified as having special needs or to be held back in elementary school than children who do not attend preschool. Studies also show clear positive effects on children's early literacy and mathematics skills, as, as well as several studies show that early intervention programs have found long-term positive effects on children's cognitive development and academic achievement that can last into longer into their adolescence and into adulthood and for broader indicators of success. So this is an overall a positive thing and a weird fact that I found along with, you know, this studying for this subject for this week is that 90% of your brain's growth actually happens before the age of five. I had to actually like triple check that stat to make sure that that was actually true. But in fact, it's very true. 90% of our brain growth does happen before kindergarten. So this is a, an incredible investment into the children of America. Uh, this universal pre-K. So I am a big proponent of this. I hope that this is something that gets put into place. But I also want to talk about affordable childcare, which, you know, recently, if you've been following along with me on YouTube, you'll notice that I've had some candidate episodes come through my YouTube channel. And some of the candidates have been talking about, you know, the affordability of childcare and how that's a big issue for people here in Montana. But it's a big issue for everyone around the country. Childcare is incredibly expensive. I mean, and it has been for a long time, but even more so during the pandemic. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are really excited about the childcare provisions that are in the Build Back Better plan, the reconciliation plan, whatever you want to call it. I'm probably going to say the reconciliation plan. But a senior policy analyst for the California Budget and Policy Center was recently interviewed and said that the pandemic has clearly illustrated that our current system does little to support children and their working parents. If this reconciliation bill is signed into law, these investments could pay dividends for generations and would bring the U.S. more in line with other developed countries in terms of support offered to families. And that is absolutely true, because by every metric, when you compare the United States to other first world nations, developed nations, however you want to phrase it, we are damn near at the bottom. We just don't invest into families the way that these other nations invest into families. And we have the opportunity to change that with one piece of legislation. Because again, childcare is damn expensive. You know, the average annual price of center-based infant childcare in California, for instance, is more than the average tuition at a four-year college. Now, that is a stat that is brought to us by Child Care Aware. I mean, this is something that families have had to deal with for a long time, mind you. I have friends who are parents that tell me about the, the incredible financial burden that it is, especially if you don't live by family members yourself, so you can't rely on that kind of child care from extended family, whether that's grandparents, aunts and uncles, what have you. So move.org conducted a survey of families who were experiencing childcare burdens during the pandemic. And they found that 52% had to step away from career prospects, you know, during the pandemic because of a lack of childcare. 
Additionally, 62% said that the pandemic has made it more difficult to pay for childcare. And, and that honestly, it, it makes total sense because obviously, again, during this time, people are having a hard time while well, they were for a long time, having a hard time finding work or maintaining hours, so on and so forth. We know what it was like during lockdowns and people not being able to work as much as they wanted to or getting paid what they deserved. And again, childcare has never really wavered in its costs. I mean, right now in America, the state that is actually the lowest is South Dakota. In South Dakota, the, I guess the annual like percentage of your income that goes to childcare is 11%. But, but still think about that 11%. That is massive. If you are someone who makes the, the median annual income in America, that means you're paying like over six, like uh, over six grand a year in childcare. Like that, that's a pretty big chunk of change that we're talking about. And the highest state in America is Massachusetts around 25%. 25%, a quarter of every dollar you make goes to childcare. So imagine how many people are dropping out of the workforce because they can't even afford to send their kids to childcare. You know, just for reference here in Montana, where I live, the amount is 17%. It's absolutely incredible. People in Montana are paying around nine grand a year on average, on average for childcare. And you know, under the reconciliation bill, the one thing that they want to change is bringing that number down. And so they want to cap it. So the very most that anyone will pay for childcare is at 7%. 7%, which won't make a huge difference for people in South Dakota who are paying only 11%. But for those people in Massachusetts, that's a huge fucking deal, a huge deal. 25% to 7%. This will be life-changing for so many people. Not only that, but think about how that would also help when you pair that together with universal pre-K. And if school is starting two years earlier now, that's two extra years of not having to pay childcare costs because kids will be going to pre-K. I know in some, some circumstances, you know, pre-K only runs about half the day, but you know, even if you think about it on that lens, that's still half the day you're not paying for childcare for two years. So it, different situations for sure, but this is an overall positive thing because there are people right now who are making choices about whether or not they're going to go to work because they can't pay childcare. Just recently, I spoke with a nurse who lives in Bozeman, Montana, has four kids and decided to stop going to work because it was more, it was actually cheaper for her to stay home unemployed than it would have been for her to go to work and send her four kids into childcare. How backwards is that? That someone has to make that choice for themselves. Like, obviously, there's a glaring need in our society. We have to address that, right? But now transitioning away from affordable childcare. I also want to now talk about the extension of the child tax credit. The third thing that was on my list here, the child tax credit was put into place. Well, I guess the extended version of it, this enhanced version of it was put into place earlier this year. And so what it currently looks like is that it is $3,600 a year per child under six years old. 
and it's $3,000 a year for every other child, you know, seven up to 17. And this is available to all families whose income is at $150,000 a year or lower. And so families are getting paid monthly uh, deposits of either $250 or $300. And this may have been making a huge impact. It was projected to make a huge impact, but we are already seeing the evidence of it. You know, according to a study by the Urban Institute, the child tax credit is already cutting childhood poverty in half in California. And for those who are a little unfamiliar, childhood poverty, it's, it's basically what it sounds like, just children who are living in poverty because of the fact that their families you know, are lacking resources or lacking income. And so this has been making a massive dent in that there are so many families who are seeing a massive benefit from this. But one of the issues with this child tax credit is that it runs out at the end of this year. So come December, child tax credit essentially is gone. And so this Build Back Better plan was supposed to extend that to the year 2025, but unfortunately, it now seems like it's only going to be, if it does get extended, it will only get extended for one year. And why exactly is it only going to be extended for one year? Well, there is a, there's a few different answers to that question, but before I do that, I want to talk about just exactly how this plan was supposed to pay for all this. Cause that is the question that people are asking right now. Like, where's this money going to come from? Like, if you listen to the media right now, all they can seem to talk about when it comes to this reconciliation bill is how much it costs, how much it costs, how much it costs. Let's talk about that for a brief second. How are they planning on paying for this package? Well, as you could probably guess through taxation, there are three taxes in particular that they were talking about. Now, these aren't the only taxes, but these are the ones I'm going to focus on for the moment. One of the things they want to do is raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 25%. Now, that's one way that they're going to go about this. But also, they want to raise the income tax of people who are making $400,000 a year or more from 37% to 39.6%. So they're going to raise it 2.6%. And if you're wondering, wow, why is the Biden administration going after people who are making $400,000 a year? I'll have you know that that happens to only be literally 2% of the entire country. Just 2%. That's it. But anyway, I, I digress. One of the other ways that they're going to go about raising money for this is going to be through a capital gains tax. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what capital gains is, it's basically just the money that you make off of investments that you've had for longer than a year. Currently, there are three different rates for capital gains. There's zero, 15, and 20%. And, and that's divided up to basically depending on how much money you're making from these capital gains. But basically, the long story short version is they want to take the top rate, which is 20%, and raise it from 20% to 25%. And so the one thing that I, I want you to all to know about this again is that this really isn't affecting that many people per se. You know, recently a report came out that 89% of all stocks in America are owned by the top 10%. And 
even though these income tax rates aren't going to affect that many people and these corporate tax rates aren't going to affect that many corporations and these capital gain taxes aren't going to affect that many people there are there is a certain senator in our senate right now who is just not on board with any of it and that comes into i guess the real reason why we're talking about this subject today because the reconciliation bill should be something that just like kind of steamrolls right through the Senate. However, it's not because we currently have some obstacles in the way. And those obstacles go by the name of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, Senator from West Virginia and Senator from Arizona. So let's talk about what exactly is happening with these two, because as of right now, the reason why this bill is not already turned into a law is squarely on the shoulders of these two senators, extremely so. So with this reconciliation process, they don't actually need any votes from a single Republican in the House or the Senate to get it passed because of how they've structured this legislation. All they just need is for all the Democrats in the House to be on board and for all the Democrats in the Senate to be on board and this is done, done deal, it's over. And so that's not happening right now. And if you listen to the media, what they mostly have been talking about this is saying that this is a battle between progressives and moderates or the Bernie wing of the party and the rational wing of the party. It, it's kind of been gross to listen, to watch it all transpire. When I watch CNN or I've heard Bill Maher give his take or if I see an article in the New York Times, it's just it's always painting it as like the the left of the party and somehow the, the more reasonable people in the party. And that's not really what's going on whatsoever. This is what's going on right now. This reconciliation bill was supposed to be originally put at three point five trillion dollars and 48 senators 48 Democratic senators are on board with this, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Every Democrat in the House is on board with this legislation, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This is Joe Biden's legislation, the president's legislation. This is his legislation. He introduced it to Congress back in May and called it the American Families Plan. This is his legislation. He is on board with this. It is all of them versus two senators, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. So when the media paints this as like a progressives versus a moderates thing, please tune that out. This is literally everyone versus these two senators. And, and what exactly is their opposition? Well, let's talk about it here for a second. Kirsten Sinema doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. She has told people that she is not willing to raise taxes on any corporations or individuals. Okay. But the taxes that are being raised are on just the top few percent of people in America. So who is she actually protecting? Not the people in Arizona, as her poll numbers have been absolutely diving into the ground because people are so upset with her. The local party in Arizona has actually voted, has actually said they might censure her and kick her out of the Democratic Party because of the way that she's been acting recently. 
and she won't take interviews for anyone. She won't speak to her constituents, a whole lot of nothing, but she has been absolutely silent on what is that, what is it that she actually wants the bill to be changed? Like how she wants the bill to be changed or what she's comfortable with. She won't speak to anybody. The white house has reached out to her. She will not talk with them whatsoever. And Joe Manchin doesn't have the same story. He has a very different story, but he's been very just odd in his requests. He'll say like, oh, I want, I want certain things cut here and cut there, but he doesn't say why he wants certain cuts or, or what the reasoning behind it is. There isn't really a whole lot going on here until you kind of dig into the details a little bit. And thankfully, several journalists have been doing this and have come to find out that both Cinema and Mansion have been receiving massive amounts of campaign contributions from corporations due to their resistance to this legislation being passed. And it, honestly, it's, it's really not surprising, but it, it's really sad at the same time. It, it would seem that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are financially profiting off of blocking this legislation from becoming law. And so much so that according to Axios, Manchin privately said last week that he was actually completely okay with this bill being killed completely. Just didn't care if it ever saw the light of day. It's like, just not, just doesn't care. And so there, there honestly is so much to say here about these two. And, and again, I think we're going to come back to this subject here very, very soon. Cause there's, there's more in this bill. That's very consequential, but I kind of want to wrap up this conversation by talking about something very particular here. Earlier this year, back in January, there was a special runoff election in Georgia. And for most of November, all of December, and the very beginning of January, people all over the country were donating money to Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock down in Georgia. People went down there and campaigned for them. They went down there and, you know, like knock doors for them. And people were so invested in this because they thought like, hey, if the Democrats take the Senate, then we can finally get some things done here in the country because we haven't been able to because Mitch McConnell would not allow for anything to ever get done while he was the Senate majority leader. And I just can't help but feel a sense of true, just deep, disgusting irony that Mitch McConnell is not the Senate majority leader anymore, but it doesn't matter because now Manchin and Cinema, who are basically just corporate avatars, have taken his place as the Grim Reaper, not allowing things to happen. Manchin being okay with this bill being killed completely and Cinema saying that she doesn't want to raise taxes. At the end of the day, if you're going to put forth any new legislation. There's only two ways to do it. You can either raise taxes or you can cut current spending. And it doesn't seem like she's asking for current spending to be cut whatsoever. I mean, Joe Manchin made a, a brief comment about how, well, maybe we shouldn't do this right now because of he's worried about inflation. But if he's so worried about inflation, why isn't he suggesting that maybe we cut our biggest expense whatsoever, which is our military budget? This bill is it calling for $3.5 trillion in spending over 10 years. Our military budget is going to be calling for $8 trillion in spending over the next 10 years. 
why don't people talk about that when they talk about inflation? Why don't people talk about that when they ask, how are we going to pay for it? We have a chance right now to make a truly deep impact in the lives of children around this country with this legislation between universal pre-K, childcare, and the child tax credit. I think it's up to all of us who truly care about these issues to speak up on social media and put the fire on mansion and cinema. They are going to get away with this if they feel like the country is not paying attention to them. If you're listening to this episode right now, post something online about mansion or cinema, because if we do not make enough noise, they are going to get away with killing this bill. And all of the great things that I just mentioned will never, never see the light of day. With that being said, we are now going to transition to the next part of this episode. I have my guest for this week. We'll be having a brand new conversation. So make sure you stay tuned after a few words from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Welcome back from the break, everyone. And thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. I am joined by Maggie Bornstein. She is coming on to Independent Thought for her first appearance, ladies and gentlemen. Maggie, how are you doing today? Thank you for coming on. I'm doing so well. Thanks for having me on, Desmond. Yeah, I appreciate it. So I wanted to talk to you today about the Hyde Amendment. This is a conversation that I have not had on my podcast yet. You know, the just the abortion topic in general is something that is, you know, very polarizing. And it's a conversation that is very relevant in today's country, especially what we saw with Texas down, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. 
But you know, before I kind of get into Texas and abortion as a whole, I want to talk more specifically about the Hyde Amendment. So for those who are unfamiliar with it, can you explain what exactly it is and what are your feelings on it? Like, what, where do you, what's your position on it? Sure. So the Hyde Amendment came to be, um, it was included in the federal budget the first time it was passed, uh, shortly after Roe versus Wade was passed as a way to sort of minimize the impact uh, Roe could have in terms of abortion access. It's a federal prohibition on uh, using federal funds to support abortion in the United States. Um, and a lot of us probably are like, what does that, what does that mean? Um, it means that United States military members and veterans, uh, those who live on reservations because their health care is provided through Indian Health Services, which is through the federal government, uh, Peace Corps volunteers and members of, um, or residents of the District of Columbia cannot access abortion uh, that is financed in a way that their health care is traditionally financed, um, which given the way that healthcare exists in the United States and that it is costly, it basically cuts off access uh, for those populations specifically. Right, so the question that I, I wanna ask more specifically is, you know, with this restriction on abortion funding, who do we see that is the most impacted by this? Like who are the people who are like mostly going to be caught like uh, without healthcare because of this, because of this amendment? Sure. I think that's the reason I feel so negatively about Hyde and why uh, progressively more folks are feeling like Hyde has to go is because uh, low-income people, people of color, and people in rural places, specifically rural reservation communities, are most impacted by the Hyde Amendment, um, which another component of Hyde is that states can implement Hyde adjacent legislation, which allows states um, to ban the use of Medicaid funding for abortion. And so there are other specific areas of the country in which, you know, people who depend on, you know, state health care cannot access abortion. And so um, a lot of those folks tend to be uh, obviously low income and specifically it targets a lot of uh, like Black, Indigenous, people of color, you know, communities that are compromised or comprised mostly of those folks. Right. And so we're seeing, especially, you know, with those who are living on reservations, you know, they can't get care on the reservation itself. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually extremely alarming. So there is a component of Hyde that says in the event that uh, without an abortion, someone's life uh, would be at risk or jeopardized, that providers are allowed to provide an abortion. Um, but a 2002 report, it was created by the Native American Women's Health, um, gosh, Education Resource Center, it's a big long name, found that 85% of Indian Health Services facilities were not compliant with the exception laws. And so that in a a lot of cases, the majority of cases where somebody's life was at risk, they were still not providing abortion because of the way that that Hyde exists and threatens what is best for people's healthcare. I don't know about you, but I would like to know that when my doctor is providing healthcare, they're doing what is best for me and not out of fear of policy and re repercussions for doing what is right. And so um, it is true. And it's it's the reason why in Montana, it's a big part of the reason why in Montana, uh, the average Montanan who's accessing an abortion has to drive uh, high, very high above the national average to get an abortion compared to other places in the country. Right. And, and I think one of the things that I hear, you know, time and time again, 
is that, you know, if, if you just put restrictions on abortions, if you outlaw abortion one way or another, that it's not going to really stop abortions. It's just going to stop people from having safe abortions. Now, the question that I really have here is what exactly like is the effects of, of legislation like this? I, I guess, you know, in a broad sense, like how many like women are we seeing that are going to be, I guess, uh, impacted by this and what exactly happens like when they need to go get an abortion? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize it's like a lot of women are the folks getting abortion, but it's also like two-spirit individuals, transgender men. There's a lot of people who receive abortions, non-binary people. And so that, you know, can make somebody's experience very different and unique. Um, and so people already have like, uh, you know, perceived barriers based on identity that can create challenges in addition to for example, religious idea, like identity, um, though we know that like a lot of people who are religious or Catholic uh, get abortions. Um, but, you know, outside of like the perceived barriers that we have based on who we are, um, what happens is that people have to drive hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, Montana, unfortunately, has a very rich history of clinic violence in terms yeah. of Blue Mountain Clinic here in Missoula was burnt to the ground. Um, up in the Flathead, we lost a clinic for a number of years because it was vandalized. It was originally in Kalispell and then rebuilt um, in Whitefish. It's called All Nation or sorry, All Families Healthcare. Um, and but in the time that All Families Healthcare was closed for I think three or four years. Uh, if you lived in Browning, Montana, you had to drive to Missoula, Montana to get an abortion. And that was the closest place you could go. And if you don't have health insurance that covers abortion, you may be on Medicaid, you may not. Um, and now at a state level, we're going to probably see the end of open enrollment for Medicaid, which makes this issue very, very uh, significantly more challenging. Um, the other issues that exist are people who have abortions, the majority of them already have at least one child. Um, how do you pay for childcare? How do you pay for transportation? If you have to stay somewhere overnight, how do you pay for a hotel? Um, there are a number, how do you ask for time off of work? You know, there are a number of different, different issues that come up in addition to like the actual, like, I just need healthcare. Um, and even I think, trying to call to get an abortion it's finding out even if you do have private insurance if it's covered and ask even asking about that is so stigmatizing for people there's not really uh many more stigmatized health health care services other than abortion um that to my understanding that have the same effect and so that's sort of the landscape of what what we're seeing um and Unfortunately, like that is the reality in Montana, but luckily we don't see a lot of people resolving to um, illegal methods or um, alternative methods because we have really great support systems like the Susan Wickland Fund, Montana's abortion fund. But it's not to say that people's experiences aren't challenging and often additionally traumatizing um, and stigmatizing in ways it doesn't need to be because inherently it isn't but the way that we have created the situation to be um, because of the barriers that exist, we make people feel bad, more badly than they ever need to. Yeah. And it, it does seem that when women are, you know, or, or people in general are just put in a situation where they're, you know, thinking about whether or not they need to get an abortion or want to get an abortion, they already have to feel that, that social pressure of, you know, feeling that, that stigma, am I a bad person for feeling that way? 
you know, could you, could you speak to that directly? Like, did you feel any of that kind of pressure when you were, you know, like thinking about whether or not you were going to get an abortion? Yeah. You know, it was interesting because I had been like volunteering with Planned Parenthood from this time I was 15 years old, like lobbying for comprehensive sex education and um, to have privatized bills for minors so that, you know, their guardians wouldn't see uh, the services that they were accessing um, when they were considered like sensitive services. Um, and I, for my entire adult life said, um, I am a thousand percent pro-choice, um, but I don't think if it were to come to me that I would make that choice. And I, again, I've literally been to like a Planned Parenthood national conference and, uh, you know, I, I'm so, so pro-choice. Um, but when it happened to me that I found out I was pregnant and I got an abortion, um, the actual experience itself was one of the most, like the medical experience is one of the most empowering situations I had found myself in. I've never received more uh, like humanistic medical care where I felt like that my providers cared about me and they wanted what was best for me and um, were confident that like I knew what was best for me and that's not something that we always feel in the medical world and so um, I think that a lot of when people have the feelings that I did um, comes from the way that the anti-choice movement is really good at what they do in stigmatizing abortion to make you think it's going to be something that it's not, that it's going to be violent and painful and horrifying. And in reality, it was a very like run of the mill medical procedure. It's actually safer than most dental surgeries. Um, and so most folks don't know that. And so after I made that decision, I said, you know, I would easily make it again if I were to find myself in that position. Um, and I knew immediately it was what I needed to do but I, I created a lot of weight for myself that I didn't need to. And I think a lot of people share in that. Yeah. And it, it seems as though it, it can be a very, a very unique situation for, for a number of different people who aren't sure how they're supposed to feel or, or what they're supposed to do. We, we just now have seen, we're seeing a, like across the country restrictions being put into place. I mean, Georgia, Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri, Texas, most notably, these quote unquote, like heartbeat bills that are being put into place. There's a couple of different questions I want to ask you about it. But th I guess the first one is, you know, we're in the state of Montana currently, do you think that a bill like that could ever come through our state? Like what exactly would happen if they tried that here in Montana? It's interesting, because I'm a person with a specific passion around this issue and a person who has done the tangible, like, legislative organizing, and I have a good understanding of the state government, you know, the landscape of our state legislature. Um, and even with the extremism in our state legislature, it would almost immediately face an injunction in Montana because we ratified our constitution. So basically revised it or created a new one uh, around when Roe was being ruled. And um, at that time, the right to privacy was coded to mean, you know, right to choice um, in a way that the way you and I read that now, it doesn't read as clearly now, but when it was written, it was so obvious. And then what ensued was a really, really strong, strong judicial precedent around abortion in Montana. And many would argue we actually have one of the strongest right to privacy in the country. And so um, 
we saw a couple different rulings around abortion, including one of the most notable is like Jeanette versus Jeanette R versus Ellery. Ellery, gosh, sorry. And that's in 1995. And then Armstrong versus State in 99, which those two were really, really quintessential and affirming the right to abortion, not just on paper, but in tangible practice that limitations um, are hard to come by in, term, in Montana because of our right to privacy. One of those cases was around if physician's assistants could perform abortion in Montana. If that had gone to the United States Supreme Court, it would have ruled uh, outside of our favor. But in Montana, we ruled that physician's assistants could perform abortion in Montana. And that is like, it seems kind of silly. And you're like, how is that relevant? Well, it's something that will protect our right to abortion for decades, even if we lost Roe. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's something that I think that a lot of people are concerned about, especially during this time where we're seeing certain, certain state governors, I guess, more or less flex their power. And I guess now that brings me to the next question I wanted to ask you is given what we're seeing in these states and how the Supreme Court's I guess, more or less ruled, but didn't rule on it by, by not ruling on it uh, in their little shadow docket. Where, where do you think this is all heading just personally? Uh, do you believe that the Supreme Court is about to essentially rule to overturn Roe v. Wade? And what kind of impact will we see from that? I cannot be sure what the Supreme Court will or will not do. I, it was interesting. I was asked this when Amy Coney Barrett's like nomination was up. I gave a presentation on this topic and that was where most of the questions were heading. And unfortunately, I'm not a, a mind reader um, of the courts, but um, I think like if you're a Montanan listening to this who has anxiety to know that like the courts in Montana are on our side. And it's not to say that Montana has the most liberal Supreme Court by any means. It's our Supreme Court functions exactly how it should and that we have a good constitution and a strong judicial precedent to protect your rights. It's interesting, we actually see, I think about nine to 11%, it varies in any given year of abortions that take place in Montana are actually from people who don't live here. And that's a pretty high number. I mean, that's almost like one in 10. Um, and part of that, is because our neighboring states have way more strict restrictions around abortion because they don't have that strong judicial precedent and that strong constitution like how we do. Um, and so, I mean, if we lost Roe, we would see an outright ban on abortion in Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, um, you know, every neighboring state that we have for the most part. Um, and so what would happen most certainly if we lost Roe would be an increase in and travel to Montana for abortion. Um, but uh, I can't say, I don't, I don't know what the courts will do. I, I would hope that they wouldn't um, go back on a 50, yeah, 50 year ruling, but who's to say. Right. And I, I think that's actually one of the questions that I kind of want to almost like bring to an end here, you know, with, with, you know, high, the height of them is still, I guess, more or less being in place currently. And I think also one of the things that you had mentioned prior when we talked about this was that there used to be like 20 like clinics in Montana that uh, had abortion services. Now there's only five, am I correct with that? Yes. And so if that were to happen and we saw this, you know, a potential influx of people coming into the state here, how are these clinics supposed to maintain under that kind of, under that kind of strain? And like, where, where does the funding come from if it's not coming from the federal government? It's coming, it's really challenging. So like private insurance, I have a private insurer, which when I contacted Blue Mountain Clinic to get an abortion and I told them my insurer, I had previously contacted my insurer before calling them um, and they 
called me back to confirm with my insurer and they were shocked, literally shocked because of how rare it is for private insurance to cover abortion. And typically private insurance signals some type of privilege. Like I have it through my parents. I'm not by any means like wealthy or, um, you know, a high earner by any means, but it is so rare that it's through private insurance. Medicaid does provide some certainty in Montana because Medicaid does cover abortion, but the issue is that we might lose open enrollment, which that will like really worsen this issue. Um, and it's hard to pay out of pocket because you're looking at 500 to $600 more. And so what tends to happen with a lot of like equity-based healthcare practices, this is kind of bizarre, is that sometimes healthcare agencies will charge more to those with insurance uh, than those without. And not that I would ever see the cost of that, you know, if my insurer is going to cover it, but what that does allow them to do is to create a buffer and to make it lower for those who are paying out of pocket. Um, and that, I know I have a good friend who had top surgery who is transgender and yeah, paying out of pocket was more cost effective than, uh, or like the bill on paper than if, that person had had insurance um, that would have covered it. And that's actually kind of common in equity sort of health practices um, or health procedures. And then there are abortion funds in Montana that make it possible for people to pay for abortion. And so Susan Wickland Fund is one of them. It's named after an incredible like abortion provider who served our state and other states um, providing abortion in a time that it was very much so unsafe to do so um, for providers themselves. And then there is Indigenous Women Rising is a national abortion fund that provides uh, funding for Indigenous folks who are seeking abortion. And so um, the problem is, and like what the, the issue is, is like why we went from 20 to five clinics is in part because clinics are like really costly to upkeep. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, if you or I go to get an annual checkup, like that's always going to be covered by insurance. They always can count on that money. Whereas, um, unfortunately, clinics really can't count on um, sustained income. This is like a labor of love and like justice, what cl like clinics do. And so um, it is very challenging for them to maintain operating. Absolutely. And Maggie, thank you for coming on to the show today and talking about this issue. Um, again, you know, this is a very, a very trying time for a lot of people in the country, especially around the issue of abortion. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing some knowledge with us. Uh, those two links that you just referenced, uh, those two organizations, I'll have links for those in the episode description. Uh, is there any place that the people could get in contact with you if they would like to after the episode is over? Sure. My email um, is M-A-G-G-I-E in my the second part of it is B-O-R-N-S-T-E-I-N at gmail.com. Um, and I'm pretty responsive there. And uh, my Instagram is also the Maggie Project. So T-H-E-M-A-G-G-I-E-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. Sorry. And I'm like more than happy to talk about this. Um, you know, access really gave me my life back and really helped me. And so I'm really happy to help people navigate that and to just be a listening ear and provide guidance um, as people navigate what can be like so stigmatizing um, and feel so alone. So I'm so happy to talk to folks about this um, individually and personally. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much again for coming on the show today. For everyone who's interested, those links will be in the episode description. So go ahead and click on the description right now and you'll see those links right there. And to everyone else, we'll be right back after a quick break with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me through this episode of Independent Thought. If you are not already, please follow me on Instagram at Independent Thought. That is the best way to keep up with this podcast. Now, I will, firstly, I want to thank my guest for this week, Maggie Bornstein. I really do appreciate you coming on and dealing with me uh, through some of our issues recording that episode this week. I vastly appreciate your patience and your knowledge in the subject about the Hyde Amendment and about abortion services, you know, like in the state of Montana and around the country. So thank you for coming through and giving all of us a little bit of extra knowledge on that. I also want to thank all of my subscribers who tune in each and every week. I do appreciate you showing up through this. I know that dealing with politics on a week in and week out basis can be a little exhausting. So thank you for taking the time each and every week to be here and listen to these episodes as well as a huge shout out to the members of my Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It really is, you know, a massive deal for me. I am going to be investing into some video software in the upcoming future. And most of these Patreon funds are going straight towards that. So it's just going to be going right back into making this show better and expanding the amount of content I can bring everyone. And speaking of which, What's coming next for the podcast is, you know, honestly, it's, it's a lot of it's YouTube. I'm trying to expand a little bit on there. I definitely feel like a little bit of a boomer right now trying to learn how to use video editing software and trying to figure out uh, how to make eye contact with the camera when I'm talking and how to make engaging videos. I think it'll be a long process, but it'll be a worthwhile one. So Stick with me through these early rough patches on YouTube. I think we're going to make a pretty decent channel over there as time goes on. And also, I've been contemplating making a TikTok. I feel like I might be a little too old for TikTok, but I'm thinking about hopping on there. I've had other podcasters tell me that it's a great way to promote your podcast. So I'm kind of contemplating it, but I'd love some feedback on TikTok if for those of you out there who have one or thinking about getting on there like how do i go about this give me some feedback i do not know what to do with tiktok but one of the things to be on the lookout as far as the podcast is concerned is there are several topics that are going to be coming up i told you in the last episode about some of the guests that are going to be coming through but as far as topics uh, that i'm going to be bringing you we are going to be coming back to this reconciliation topic. That That's for damn sure. But next week, I think I have something else in store for all of you. Not quite sure if I'm going to do it just yet. So I don't want, to, don't want to say it's coming for sure, for sure. But there's a certain topic that I stumbled across just tonight that I feel as though is it falls into my category. Not getting enough attention needs more attention. Why aren't people talking about this? Here it is. So to be continued on that. Final thoughts for this subject. I have been following along with my news sources, people in the independent sphere, about Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, 
how they've been holding it up. It, it feels like the updates keep coming every single day where it's like, oh, Kirsten Cinema is being followed into a bathroom. And how much of a controversy is that? But then, oh, wait, she's not letting any of her constituents reach her. Like people can't call her. People aren't getting any emails back. She's not making herself available for any press. Like what's going on with her? Oh, by the way, she's actually teaching a class at Arizona State this year about how to fundraise and how to make money off of donors. Like the irony is just truly thick there. And then again, as I've referenced multiple times on this podcast so far, about how she's been taking campaign contributions from so many places. Just last week, it was reported that she took over $500,000 from pharmaceutical companies. And coincidentally, she now opposes the government being able to, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word here? The government being able to bargain for lowering prescription drug costs for Medicare, which is one of the things that's supposed to be in this reconciliation bill. You know, surprise, surprise. Or Joe Manchin being against the clean energy provisions in the reconciliation bill when he actually directly makes money from coal. It's just like, I cannot get over just the legalized corruption that we are seeing take place here. And as I was saying in the first segment here, Mansion and Cinema are legitimately just corporate avatars. They're not even they're not even actually talking about what they want. They are speaking directly for their corporate donors and masquerading as actually having morality and somehow convincing so many people in America that it's legitimate. I mean, what's even worse is that some people will say they're like, oh, well, Kirsten Cinema, for instance, she's in Arizona, so she has to be more moderate because Arizona is a swing state. I mean, don't you understand that? Meanwhile, the other senator in Arizona is also a Democrat. His name is Mark Kelly. He's up for re-election next year, and he is completely on board with everything in the Build Back Better plan and for it to be at $3.5 trillion. So it's just, it's a giant joke. It, it honestly is, it's pissing me off so much, especially because of how the media is covering it. They're not covering it accurately enough. Now, with that being said, some people are, I've seen articles come out recently who have been blasting Mansion and Cinema, who have been calling out rightly the money that they're making on the side. So that's been encouraging. And I'm hoping to see more of that in the future. But man, seriously, we really need more people talking about this. I feel as though just from being on my personal social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, so many people have just turned off their political appetite. Like people aren't sharing stories anymore. People aren't talking about it. People just seem to have lost interest. And it's, it's disheartening, like truthfully, because these, these are the, the moments when you know that apathy seems to like just kick back in and people just stop caring all over again and then come election year people wonder how things are so fucked up you know i understand that we all have things that we're going through and life is tough and you can't stay engaged all the time but don't don't check out completely just don't check out completely these issues need your voice please share something so with all that being said we're going to cut off this episode for this week, but please send me your thoughts. Let me know what you thought of this episode. 
And if you have any feedback on whether you liked it, whether you didn't like it, let me know. If you're listening to this currently on YouTube, leave a comment down below. Much appreciated. I will see you all in the next episode.